Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Our Bishop Robert E. Hayes, Jr. is now in his third year as Bishop of all of us United Methodists in the state of Oklahoma. Each of the first three years, he's had a series of retreats for all the clergy in the state. Uh, he's usually offered us five different dates, and uh, about a fifth of us are supposed to sign up for each one. This year's theme was spiritual formation. Uh, I went to the one out in Canyon Camp and heard a resource person talk to us about how we can put ourselves in the right places at the right times doing the right things so that God grows a bigger spirit within us and how we should then come back home and help provide similar times and spaces for our laity to do the same. Last year's theme was evangelism. The mission statement of the Methodist Church is to make disciples for Jesus Christ. How diligently we work at that, how effectively we work at that. The first series of retreats with our bishop uh, was about stewardship. And as I read this text, which includes the words abundant life, I remembered one of that resource person statements the first year our bishop was here. He said, we United Methodists are usually right down at the bottom on contributing to our church compared to other Christian groups in the United States of America. We give less per member than virtually any other Christian body in this country. And he said, I think the reason that happens is that we have not done a good job of teaching our people. They give out of a spirit of scarcity. They think they will not have enough. And the reason they think they will have not have enough is that they wait to give out of what's left over every month. And if you wait to give what's left over, you're always afraid of running out. He said, if we could ever convince people that good stewardship has to do with setting aside your gift at the first. And when you make that decision, it puts all the rest into proper perspective. So when I deal with abundant life, if you've been hearing me the last 27 years, you know I'm not one who preaches the prosperity gospel, that if you come to Jesus, you will be richer than all your neighbors or all the other members of your family. No, so how do you and I look at this text about abundant life? I've underlined four things. The first thing I underlined is the part about that thief, the thief who breaks in, whose sole purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. Now, John in his writing and Jesus in his speaking was probably dealing with 
a certain situation in that day and time having to do with certain Pharisees and Sadducees. But you and I don't have to go back nearly that far to deal with a definition of the thief who breaks in just to steal and kill and destroy. This word translated thief is the word lestes in Greek. It usually is translated in classical Greek as just a robber. But it can be used in other ways. For example, on that Friday morning that Jesus was enduring this mock trial of Pontius Pilate, this little courtyard full of people who were there screaming, ranting, and railing at him, Barabbas was offered up instead of Jesus, and he was called a lestes. And uh, many believe this word in that case meant insurrectionist, one who was trying to overthrow the Roman government. This is the word that's used here, the lestes, that thief whose sole purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. You may have heard on the news last night there was a wedding over at First Methodist Church yesterday afternoon. It's just four blocks from here. A young man, young woman who had dreamed all their lives about a wedding day, and now it had come for them. Uh, they had dated some time and decided that this was the right person for each and had made all their plans, were having the wedding, and someone broke into the bride's room over there. All the bridesmaids had left their purses in there. A number of people had brought gifts at the very last minute. They had all been put in the bride's room and locked up. Not only that, but the bride and groom had their money for the honeymoon trip. They had locked it up carefully in the bride's room, and it was all gone when the wedding was over. Thieves made one mistake. They took a little cell phone in one of the purses that had a global positioning device on it which led the police to a dumpster, not to the thieves, but to a dumpster just a few blocks away where a lot of the paper goods, like driver's license and things, were, were found. But, of course, not the money, not the presents. Uh, this person couldn't have cared less about bride or groom, about plans and dreams, about honeymoon trips. No, it was about breaking in, stealing, not in this case killing, but destroying whatever. We've all lived through a tough time this week with the families of those who were killed at Virginia Tech University. Uh, remember when 9-11 occurred, a couple of cartoons, if you would, that I saw, political type cartoons, and one of them showed the Statue of Liberty with a tear running down her face as she looked across where the Twin Towers were missing, and the other was a huge bald eagle with a big tear on its face. We've all felt that this week. And I don't presume to know what was on Cho's mind. I've heard probably as much as you've heard this week. But one thing we can say, these other 32 mattered not a whit to him. In fact, the medical examiner who had to perform autopsies on them said he didn't come across a single victim who did not have at least three bullets in her or his body. He intended to kill them all. One of those who threw himself against the gunman trying to save his students was a Holocaust survivor. An old man who had faced the weapons of the Nazis uh, 65 years ago suddenly was facing the weapon of a young crazed person here in the United States of America in a classroom. It's horrible that we have so many people whose attitude is simply steal, kill, destroy. Steal, kill, and destroy. They certainly are out there everywhere, it seems, at times. Dr. Scott Harrison was recently writing about uh, confrontation with some of the French history. He was writing about King Louis XIV. 
And he pointed out when Louis XIV was king of France, his armies moved across Western Europe so convincingly, so devastatingly, that France became the strongest power in Western Europe at that time. And then they lost a big battle, a crushing defeat at Blenheim at the hands of the British. And when Louis XIV was told about this crushing defeat, he said, how could God do that to me when I've done so much for him? Can you see why there was a French Revolution? Why people finally get so sick and so tired of thieves who break in to steal and kill and destroy, who do not think of all these soldiers going into battle as somebody's son, somebody's husband, somebody's brother, now, of course, somebody's daughter, somebody's sister, somebody's wife, somebody's mother, that folks who kill, steal, destroy, are not what our Lord Jesus was about. Number two, he then contrasts that by saying, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep, not requiring the sheep to lay down their lives for me. I lay down my life for the sheep. Dr. Raymond Brown, in his monumental work on the Gospel of John, says that, that this is certainly an allusion to Ezekiel, chapter 34. Ezekiel, writing into a very difficult period in Judah, the northern tribes have been devastated, destroyed by the Assyrians. The people so convincingly defeated, the women raped, plundered, and intermarried that we speak of them still today as the ten lost tribes of Israel. They cease to exist as a separate people. Only two tribes left at that time, Judah. And Ezekiel's writing into that situation and trying to say, our kings are bad shepherds. Our kings are using our people as fodder. They steal from them. They kill them. They destroy them. Think of how many monarchs in the world today are doing the same, or how many leaders of countries are doing the same to their own people and their next-door neighbors if they can. What a contrast to have one who says, I'm the good shepherd. I don't demand the sheep's lives. I offer my own for them. I lay down my life for them to show the love of God how God feels about the sheep. Because in Ezekiel 34, God speaks through his prophet and says, but the day is coming when I, Yahweh, the Eye Asher Eye, the I am who I am, your God will become your shepherd and I will lead my people where my people need to go. And Jesus is equating himself in these words in John's gospel with that Proclamation: God has come to you. I'm willing to lay down my life. Bonnie Wheeler has written recently about going on a retreat at a Roman Catholic convent. She said she just had so many things going on in her life that she felt she needed these few days apart, not speaking to anyone, no one speaking to her, just being quiet in this monastery, uh, this convent, going to worship if she felt like it, praying alone if she felt that was better. She'd been there several days and she said, still, I've got all these things going on in my mind. All I can think about is things I need to be doing. And here I am at this convent. And then one afternoon late, she walked across a part of this convent property she had not walked across before and saw a statue of Jesus. Not a crucifix. Uh, Jesus is a younger man 
holding a piece of wood in his hand. And she said the look on his face, the way this artist had portrayed him, that you could see that he was looking at this piece of wood with great admiration, almost as if he were thinking, what a wonderful use I can make of this piece of wood, what good it can do for somebody, how much it can help, bless, benefit somebody. Scholars believe that Jesus probably worked as a carpenter the early part of his adulthood because he had younger brothers and sisters to care for. Joseph is not mentioned after Jesus was 12 in Luke's Gospel. Uh, the Bible says he had at least four brothers. They're named. It says sisters, which would have to be at least two. So if Jesus was the oldest of seven, then it means that after he was born, Joseph and Mary lived together as husband and wife, perhaps had a baby about every two years, then Joseph must have died. Jesus, being oldest then, worked as a carpenter or a stonemason to try to support younger brothers and sisters. When he was about 30, perhaps they could fend for themselves and he could move on. But Bonnie says, as depicted here, he's looking at this piece of wood, this piece of wood with which something really wonderful could happen. Perhaps, perhaps, already looking ahead to dealing with people, with human lives with how human lives could be used in such marvelous ways, in such beautiful ways, if there was one who was willing to go as far as necessary to show the love of God. I am the good shepherd, he said. I lay down my life for the sheep. Then he says, so I will call them by name and they will follow me because they trust me. They know my voice. And he says, I will lead them out and bring them back. And this word lead out is a, is a very particular word, exagain, and it appears in Numbers 27. We need to remember that when John first wrote here, most of the people did not read nor write. In rural areas, uh, scholars of that first century say that probably 97, 98% could not read nor write. And so they have to hear. They hear stories told. They hear Scripture read. Of course, John's gospel wasn't considered scripture at that point. But, but scriptures were the Hebrew scriptures. And Numbers is one of the five scrolls of the Torah. It's a very significant scroll. If one should go to Temple Israel every Friday night for a year, or Congregation B'nai Amunah every Friday night for a year, one would hear the whole Torah dealt with every year. Numbers would have been very familiar to faithful Jews. Numbers 27. Moses has just been led up onto a high mountain by God. And God said, I want you to look across the river and see this land that I've promised to my people. But you're not going to cross the river, Moses. Forty years ago, you had opportunity to cross that river and the 12 spies you sent out came back, 10 of them saying, we cannot take this land. The inhabitants are too big and too strong for us. And you took that majority report. Things have not always gone well the last 40 years. You're not going to cross the river. You will die here on the top of the mountain and be buried here. And Moses said, Then I pray to you, I am who I am, our God, that you will appoint a good shepherd who will lead out in the Septuagint, the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Scriptures, exagain, the one who will lead our people out and bring them back. That one was named Joshua. In Hebrew, Yeshua. 
And when Jesus was named with his Hebrew name, it was Yeshua, which became in Greek Jesus, which became in English Jesus, but it's the same name. The shepherd, the good shepherd, who leads the people out and brings them back in. Now, what does that mean for us? It means we have to take Jesus very seriously when he says, if we follow him, if we are the sheep who know his voice and follow him as he leads us out, then we go where he goes. And he went to a cross. And he said, those who follow me must take up a cross and follow me. And I remind you, your cross is not your arthritic knee. It's not a bad shoulder. Uh, it's not even a tummy ache. Crosses are something we voluntarily take on ourselves and basically that we move self from the center of our existence and put God, God's Son, our Lord Jesus, and others at the center of our lives. By this they shall know you are my disciples, that you love one another. Love your neighbor, neighbor, one nearest you at any given moment. Who is that one nearest you at any given moment? Are you willing to put yourself out for the well-being of another? If you want this abundant life, if you want this everlasting life, it comes by giving it away, he said, by, by giving your life away from that center spot and putting God and others into that center spot. Many of you know that all these many years Gail and I have been married, we've had a Friday night date. Even when we had very little money back in our schooling days, uh, we always had enough for a, for, a, for a date every week. And uh, lots of times we just go out and eat and sometimes we go to the theaters and so on. But one of the things that I've done for years now is buy season tickets to Tulsa Ballet. And I take Gail to the ballet. I know nothing about ballet. Gail studied ballet when she was younger and she loves ballet. Now, those who know say that Tulsa has one of the finest ballet companies in this country, one of the really great ballet companies of the world. So twice a year they present classical works like Swan Lake. And twice a year they present programs of more contemporary work. So I was interested recently when I was reading an article by Eleanor Sass. She said she came to love ballet when she was five that her mother took her to see Swan Lake for the first time when she was five. And she said, I, I just couldn't believe how beautiful this was. And I've loved ballet ever since. She said, when I got a little bit bigger, I took ballet lessons. And I remember that in one of my very first lessons, I asked my teacher, how do they pirouette and then another and another and doing them faster and faster without getting dizzy? And my teacher said, Notice very carefully, the body starts turning before the head turns. The head is focused straight ahead until the body cannot turn any farther without the head following. And the head then moves ahead of the body so that the face is right toward the audience and then whirls and is right toward the audience again, though the body is preceding it halfway around and then following it the other halfway around. And the way they do that is they focus on one object. Maybe the orchestra director's baton. Maybe a speaker down near the front of the stage. Maybe a particular stage light. In some theaters, maybe it's a chandelier dimmed for the performance but still visible. They focus on one thing. And as they spin, they come back to that one thing as quickly as they possibly can. And Eleanor said, 
like Christians are supposed to do if they follow the Good Shepherd. That we stay focused. No matter how we're twisted and turned, we stay focused. Number four. Let's get to that part about abundant life. And I've come that you might have abundant life. Eternal life is added in this passage. So here, of course, I'm not going to tell you that if you profess faith in Christ, you're going to get rich. You'll have more than all your neighbors or all of your family members and so on. I'm not one of those kinds of preachers. I believe what Jesus is talking about and what John is writing for us here is that the abundant life is found when we know ourselves to be in right relationship with God through Christ, that we know the grace of God, and we know ourselves to be rightly related to others, not seeing them as sheep from whom we are to steal, kill, and destroy, but as our sisters and brothers, as people for whom Christ was willing to die, whom God loved so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, that if they would come to believe in him, they might have life and life everlasting. To be in right relationship with God by God's grace and to be in right relationship with others, knowing ourselves loved as much as any other, but not more than any other child of God. Sue Kid, before she became a writer full-time, was a nurse in her young adult life. And in her latest book, First Light, she tells a story about her nursing days. She said on the wing she was working at the time, there was a little girl, five years old, who was comatose. And that every afternoon on her daddy's way home, he would stop at the hospital. The mother would have already been there, but on the way home from work, he came by every day. He was there again on Saturday, again on Sunday. And she said, as I would move up and down the hall, I would see him in there sitting by the bed. Sometimes he brought a little bouquet of flowers, which she didn't see. Sometimes he gently combed her hair, which she didn't seem to feel. Sometimes he just sat and held her little hand in his bigger ones. She never, ever moved. Not a twitch. Not a twitch. Sometimes he'd talk to her about her doggy, or he'd talk to her about her little brother. He'd talk about grandmother and granddaddy. Only to come back again the next day. And so one day she said as he was starting to leave, going down the hall, I stopped him and said, it must be very difficult to come back day after day and love someone who's not responding. And he said, it is. But I will love her forever, whether or not she loves me back. 